0: Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Hey, Jim. Hey, John. How are you? I'm good. Uh, episode seven. Chapter
1: six. Yep. So you lost five bucks. We made it this far.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, uh, no, I, let's just not rush to judgment. We have That's- made it this far.
1: <laughs> and we're actually not to the end of the episode. So.
0: Exactly. Judgment, uh, judgment just hold it off a little bit.
1: There. We'll have to check with Vegas on the over-under. Exactly. making it to the end of episode seven. <laughs> ah. But it's great to be here. And uh, I don't know what you're hearing on the street, but I've actually had, believe it or not, magicians, professional name magicians, email me and say, hey, if, if you ever need me on the show, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be on, which suggests uh, that they're oh, listening.
0: Somebody's listening. Yeah. Somebody's listening, uh, yeah. The, so. good.
1: This is going to be a really fun one. Um, Last episode, Suzanne talked to us about Eugene Berger. So if you didn't hear that, go back and listen to that. If you go back to episode one, Jim had some great memories of Eugene. Uh, And he was one of the two major influences for the Uncle Harry character in the Eli Marks series. The other major influence, as I think we've mentioned, was also a Chicago-based magician, Jay Marshall. I was lucky enough to sit down with uh, Jay's son, Sandy, and talk to him about his dad. Sandy wrote a really terrific book about his father called uh, "Beating a Dead Horse: The Life and Times of Jay Marshall." Uh, I read that book before I started working the series, and it was just invaluable when it came to giving a sense of a magician uh, of Harry's age, the sorts of things he went through in his career to have a career. So, if you get a chance, track down that book, "Beating a Dead Horse: The Life and Times of Jay Marshall."
0: Yeah, I think it was. Critically acclaimed, too. I I, I mean, probably has uh, applications for people straight across the board, rather than just uh, like you and me, magic aficionados. I think real people. Not that we aren't real people. I don't mean to imply that, of course, John.
1: I don't know. Maybe a little bit.
0: bit. But it's really, it's quite a good read, uh, regardless of your uh, magic interest. It's just fascinating as this guy walks through his career. Uh, And he had a great career.
1: He did. He did. As has his son.
0: Yeah. Emmy award winner. Yes. I, I have a regional Emmy, if that counts for anything. All right. Don't say anything. Just move on. Just never mind. I'll show it to you at some point. And uh, you know what? The interview, because I listened to it after you did it. I'm, unfortunately, I was unable to be a part of the interview. I was taping something else that day and couldn't sit in. Uh, and I regret that. I regret never. Uh, these interviews are As much fun for me uh, as they are for anybody who's listening to the show, I love chatting with these magicians, so I'm sorry I missed chatting with Sandy, but the interview is terrific.
1: Yeah, he's great. Besides those Emmy Awards, he's got 40 years experience as a writer, director, producer, and actor. He actually produced a Max Maven live show at one point, Uh, and he's, of course, no stranger to magic. His grandfather was Al Baker. uh, The great Al Baker. The great Al Baker, uh, and his father's Jay Marshall. I think right now, Sandy's dividing his time between uh, New York, where he's producing Broadway shows, and Chicago, where he still owns uh, Magic Inc., which his uh, father and stepmother ran for for many, many years. It was really great talking to Sandy about his dad. Sorry you weren't there to hear it, but I'll just, uh, I'll hit play here and you can hear what he had to say. I jumped right in when we started with my key question. So can you just give me sort of a general elevator speech of who was Jay Marshall?
2: Well, interestingly, he was a mystery. He was a a very knowledgeable guy, had vast interests. He was someone who uh, knew a lot about almost everything. He was probably at the time the most knowledgeable person on the subject of magic in the English speaking world. He was uh, an unusual man, to be sure.
1: If you Google Jay Marshall, You'll often see him with uh, a character named Lefty. Can you explain
2: to the audience who Lefty was? Uh, well, Lefty was his uh, his glove puppet partner um, who started out as a, a khaki army glove during World War II. And um, about a, well, after he left the army, it became a white glove and then... Uh, at the suggestion of a a friend, a fellow vaudeville artist. Um, He said, Jay, you know, you're a magician. Rabbits uh, get pulled out of hats. You should make that glove a a rabbit. And um, my dad knew a good idea when he heard it. And the next day, uh, Lefty became a rabbit and he noticed a difference in the reaction of the audience immediately. And Lefty Lefty the rabbit is uh, kind of my younger brother, I guess. (laughs)
1: Not unlike uh, Candice Bergen, uh, yeah, and, and her relationship with her father's events, yeah,
2: right. We we were friends as kids because uh, you know my grandfather Al Baker uh, was a famous magician as well, and um, he used to come over and visit Al Baker, and uh, Candice and I used to uh, play together. I
1: have to tell you the the first time. I visited the Magic Circle in London with my wife and walked up onto the second floor to their little museum gallery they have up there and saw that they had the glove, they had Lefty right yeah. there in a display. Uh, and I immediately snapped a photo of it and sent it to a magician friend here in Minneapolis and said, that, you know, my trip's complete. I came all the way to London and I got to see Lefty. So uh, exactly, that, that was really cool.
2: I presented the Lefty to them uh at their centennial on stage to John Fisher, and uh, it was a a very uh, a very moving night because my dad and I were supposed to be there together, and he died two months before the uh, centenary, so uh, I uh, I presented Lefty, and then I then I cried. There were seven Lefties left when Jay died, and uh, my son has one, uh, my nephew has another one, the Magic Circle has one. Uh, I've got the the last one, the one that was in his pocket.
1: You kind of touched on this a little bit, but what was it that set Jay Marshall apart from other magicians? Well,
2: I think the fact that he was so knowledgeable about magic. I mean, he knew virtually everything about magic and, uh, you know, people would come to him and ask him about it all the time. When I was 15 years old, I invented a coin trick, which I thought was really Quite good, and uh, I have fooled magicians with this particular trick over the years, and and I still do it. Anyway, when I showed it to my father, his reaction was, "That's all right as far as those things go," uh, and and I uh, I got to tell you, from my dad, that was high praise <laughs> because he was always a very hard marker, yes, especially when it came to magic.
1: Yes. Uh, I was just talking with my co-host this morning, we're talking about Eugene Berger. And and I said, you know, I'll be talking to you this afternoon. And Jim wished he could be here, but he's at another recording right now. But he talked about that when Eugene redid his Gypsy Thread routine, that uh, your dad didn't like it and had no problem telling him that he didn't like the the changes he'd made to the Gypsy Thread routine. And and he kind of had that reputation of, he spoke his mind.
2: Yeah, well, uh, you know, my my dad was, Absolutely wrong about that. <laughs> Eugene's uh, gypsy thread routine was maybe the best ever. But I got to tell you, my my dad was usually right about things, but he was occasionally very very wrong. And I'll give you three examples, please. Well, he once worked with Edie Gourmet. Edie Gourmet was his opening act, and uh, they came to him after the run and said, uh, well, uh, Mr. Marshall, would you recommend Edie gourmet? And he didn't think she had the chops. So uh, no, he he wouldn't do it. He told me when I was a teenager, now I have to stand in line for her autograph just like everybody else. The other one was maybe the biggest. He didn't think the Beatles were gonna make it. He said, they're on Ed Sullivan's show three weeks in a row. They're gonna find when they go back to England, no one's going to remember them. This is the first time I disagreed with my father about something with regard to show business. And he was all over me like, oh, yeah, what do you know? You know, you've been in the business for two weeks. I've got 25 years experience. Well, I reminded him of this uh, back oh, around 1990. <laughs> and he laughed and said, all right, I'm going to give you that one. <laughs> now, the third example is me. He didn't think I had the chops to be in show business, but after seven Emmy nominations and two wins, he eventually capitulated. It took him that long, yeah. Uh, we, we became closer every, every year. I mean, you know, my dad was... Known mostly as a magician, but as his good friend uh, Bob Lund said, that's like honoring Joe DiMaggio because he was once married to Marilyn Monroe. I say in my book, uh, my dad, among other things, was not only a magician, but a ventriloquist, a puppeteer, a musician, a writer, magazine editor, publisher, historian, inventor, a jokesmith, balloonologist, fabulist, bibliophile, juggler, wit punch and Judy performer origami aficionado shopographer, storyteller, and comedian. You know, he did all of these things and he did them well. So, um, he was on the, the Ed Sullivan show 14 times, um, 15, if you count the one where they put a show together and he was on with the Beatles, but he never met the Beatles, but, uh, they did a, a compilation show and, uh, That was his 15th appearance, although he physically was only on 14 times, which was still a pretty good run over the course of uh, 20 years. He was last on, I think, in 1968. And one of his funny lines was, uh, the last time I was on the Ed Sullivan show was 10 years ago, which is why I thought it was the last time I was on the Ed Sullivan show. Did he ever talk about how he prepared for those performances? He never did. And sometimes you couldn't prepare for them. Uh, because you know Ed Sullivan would would say you know I want I want seven minutes and uh, well I, I have more no no just seven minutes that's all we need and then when my father was on the show just about to wrap up Sullivan held up the sign do twelve <laughs> and my father just dug out jokes and you know, he he revamped the what he was doing uh, right there on the spot, but he didn't bring what he would have brought. He would have brought maybe Trouble Wit or one of the other things that he did, but uh, you know, Sullivan left him out of the cold. And uh, that performance is really quite something to see. But uh, It sounds like he pulled it off. Oh yeah, he did. He did. He, he always did. Um, the book I wrote about him, is called Beating a Dead Horse, The Life and Times of Jay Marshall. Well, he picked the title Beating a Dead Horse. I, I, I rather didn't like the idea. Uh, he said, you can't write the book until I've croaked. I said, oh, great, you'll be dead, and the book will be called Beating a Dead Horse. That's, uh, that's funny. And um, he said, look, I did the same act for over 50 years. What else are you going to call it? So uh, I, I added the subtitle, uh, The Life and Times of Jay Marshall, and it, uh, it did very well. It won the Benjamin Franklin Award for biography, which uh, I think is the only magic-related book to ever have that honor. Um, it took me, I guess, about four years to write, and uh, I remember it, some of it was very diff- difficult to write because I had to uh, open up some walls that I'd closed off in my life. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I finished writing the book and I put the last period on, <laughs> I sat there and cried for an hour. I just wept. So that was an interesting thing I didn't see coming. When my dad died, the the knowledge-based magicians, uh, I mean, they say when someone dies, you lose a library. And someone said, when my dad died, we lost the Smithsonian Institute. You know, Johnny Thompson was someone who had that kind of knowledge, mm-hmm. and now Johnny is gone. And uh, you know, you you have, uh, I guess, Max Maven is certainly up there, yeah, with uh, people who are knowledgeable.
1: What What was your father's demeanor behind the counter when he was dealing with customers?
2: Uh, he was himself. Uh, he really, uh, he was very much himself. Didn't suffer of fools gladly. And um, he uh, was always a prankster. I remember when when Dick Cabot told me when he came in the, the shop for the first time, my dad, uh, you know, did the thing where you're seemingly walking downstairs, and uh, so he seemingly walked downstairs, vanished from behind the counter, and then seemingly walked upstairs uh, from behind the counter. And Cabot was uh, charmed by
1: that. So I know you wrote a whole book on him, but is there one story about your dad that? sticks out as as emblematic of who he was
2: well yeah i mean i i like there's a chapter in there called J. marshall versus the u.s army i uh, sort of like that chapter because it really shows who my dad was the lieutenants and the sergeants and the army didn't like my dad very much because he was such a wonderful wise ass but his fellow dog soldiers adored him wherever he went he was transferred from one base to another probably more than any other soldier because of his, you know, wise-ass comments. One that I particularly like was uh, he was at a a lecture that soldiers got quite often, and the sergeant was uh, carrying on and looked up and said, Marshal, is that man, man next to you sleeping? And my father looked and says, yes, sergeant, he is. Sergeant said, well, wake him up. My father said... You wake him up. You put him to sleep. So that's uh, that's who my dad was. And you know they they threatened to court martial them for stuff like that five separate times, and he beat it every time by by saying, "Well, fine, we'll uh, we'll put this in the press and uh, see how well you come out." And so, <laughs> rather than court martial them, they would transfer him to a different base, and uh, it was something he. Uh, he wound up being uh, sent in the, in the South Pacific uh, toward the end of the war and wound up being one of the first Americans uh, in Japan uh, as part of the Occupation Army uh, when the war ended and uh, performed for uh, General MacArthur. My dad uh, did a thing where he, he was with the, you know, the cavalry, the tank corps in essence, and he had to go from one base to another in, in Japan. And he didn't like the idea of being in a tank schlepping across uh, Japan for five hours so he said uh, do I have to get in the tank or is it just showing up at the base that's important listen if you're if you show up at the base uh, and can check in get there any way you you want so instead of getting in the tank my father took a train and um, here's a here's an American soldier with his weapon slung over his shoulder reading a book on a train with every eye on him all of all of the the Japanese uh, people looking at him this is only a a couple of weeks after the war had ended and he suddenly realized maybe this wasn't such a good idea and he told me he was reading a book but you know he wasn't sure if he ever turned the page Uh, (laughs) but he did uh, he did make it to the base on time
1: so how do you think the, the magic world and the world in general uh, will remember Jay Marshall?
2: Well, I think, uh, you know, if if you entered magic in the last 15, 16 years, you have no idea who Jay Marshall was. You know, you unless you're something of, of an historian, you you go and pick up my book or read about him in some other form. But those that knew him, those that worked with him I, I think remember him uh, very fondly as someone who was so completely knowledgeable about uh, magic and and other subjects as well you know his his knowledge was extraordinary and as I say he was usually right I I flatter myself to think he was wrong about you know my future in show business as well as the Beatles and Edie Gourmet but uh, most of the and 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 by the way Eugene Berger's uh, Gypsy Thread who was who was great. My, my dad's routine with Lefty was the tightest eight minutes in show business. And he was a very funny man. Yeah. Um, people, I think, think of him that way. He was a, a genuine wit. And um, I, uh, I learned a lot from the old man, but the thing that impressed him most was um, when we were at Sardi's together once and uh, the bartenders all knew my name more than winning Emmys, more than, you know, anything else. The fact that at Sardi's, the bartenders knew who I was, that impressed my father
1: more than anything. And that was Sandy Marshall uh, with stories about his uh, amazing father.
0: Absolutely terrific. Terrific interview. What a great guy. So when I first went to Chicago to work with, uh, Eugene Burgess who would have been 1986, I think. Uh, he took me, as I'm sure he took everybody who came to town, uh, to meet Jay Marshall at Magic Inc. And it was great. Uh, I, I spent virtually no time with him, uh, except for while well, he was behind the counter. And, you know, I kind of watched, bought a few things and chatted with him. But he had a real uh, Groucho Marx vibe to him it, it, when I... Watched him talk to people and interact with people. That had he even looked a little bit like Groucho from uh, uh, "You Bet Your Life" days. That sort of uh, with the gray mustache. And, yeah, right. In the yeah, glasses, he and
1: he definitely has that vaudevillian cadence. We've got links in the show notes to him performing on Ed Sullivan and other places, and you definitely will get that vibe from him.
0: Yeah, it. Uh, he he was terrific. You know, you think about that sort of. The idea that he had, as Sandy said in the interview, the tightest eight minutes in the business. At that point, that's maybe all you needed, right? Because uh, uh, there was no TV. You, you were doing your eight minutes and moving to the next now to do your eight minutes. And, and that's what you needed. Uh, how'd you like to be on the Ed Sullivan show and have Ed give you the, I need five more yeah. sign? <laughs> I think I would have just died right there. You know what, Ed? Good luck.
1: Good thing you had it. Yeah, he I guess had the
0: material to do I it. Know, what if I'd be doing knock knock jokes or something? I don't know what I'd do for five minutes if I had to kill on the Ed Sullivan show.
1: So Jay Marshall, Eugene Berger, both models for Uncle Harry, which brings us back to Eli Marks—the the kind yeah. of the reason we're here. Can you uh, get us caught up a little bit? I will. Last episode we heard chapter five. So before we dive into chapter six, let's take a quick look back. Eli has just been informed of the death of the mentalist Gray. The night before, and has been asked to accompany his ex wife's new husband,
0: homicide detective Fred Hutton,
1: downtown to answer some questions. So we pick up the story as he's heading downtown with the two homicide detectives.
0: The Ambitious Card and Eli Marks Mystery, Chapter 6. The drive downtown was mercifully a quiet one. Before leaving the shop, I yelled up to Harry that I was going out for a few minutes. We were gone from the store before he had made his way down the steep stairs from his apartment on the second floor. I try to limit the number of times he has to go up and down those stairs in a day, but this additional trip couldn't be helped. I was informed that I was officially a person of interest and was being brought in and held for questioning. If you read between the lines on that, which I was doing, it was pretty clear that homicide detective Fred Hutton was convinced that I had killed Gray. He was just waiting for me to break down and admit it. I wasn't being charged, he explained. I was being held, which sounded like semantics to me, since either way, I couldn't go home. However, he had the gun and the badge, and all I had was charm, and that was weaning. So I kept my mouth shut and did what I was told. Even though I wasn't being officially charged, I still had to be fingerprinted and had to surrender all my personal effects at the property desk before they put me in a room and began to beat me with a rubber hose. Or whatever they're using nowadays. Should we lock him up in some special way? The uniformed officer in charge of processing me had addressed the question to Homicide Detective Fred Hutton but he included a sidelong glance in my direction. What do you have in mind? I don't know. He's a magician, right? Homicide Detective Fred Hutton responded with a disgusted grunt. So they say. Well, I I see these guys break out of jail cells all the time on TV. I'd hate to have something like that happen on my watch. The young cop stole another glance in my direction. These guys are tricky. He held out a large manila envelope and gestured that I should turn my pockets out and drop my belongings into the packet. "'I don't think we're dealing with Houdini here,' homicide detective Fred Hutton said as I deposited my wallet, iPhone, keys, forty cents in change, and the deck of cards I always carry into the envelope. "'I think the worst he might do is fill the holding room with balloon animals.' He chuckled at his own joke, but I refused to give him the satisfaction of a smile. Then I checked one last pocket and found three sad, flaccid balloons. I wordlessly added them to the envelope. They put me in a small, airless room that held a table, two chairs, and a wooden bench that sat along one wall. For some reason, the room smelled of cheese, and old cheese at that. A digital audio recorder was permanently attached to one corner of the table. Homicide Detective Fred Hutton's partner, a vertically challenged troll of a man who introduced himself as Homicide Detective Miles Wright, was handling the questioning while Homicide Detective Fred Hutton sat in a corner, glaring at me. Instead of good cop, bad cop, I was apparently stuck with tall, stupid cop, short, angry cop. Just my luck. So, Mr. Magician. "'How well did you know the victim?' Miles asked after flipping on the recorder and stating the time, date, place, and participants involved in the interrogation. "'Not well enough to stab him through the eyes,' I said, figuring what did I have to lose. "'So you know how he was killed?' "'Interesting,' he said, almost deciding to sit in the chair opposite me. "'He changed his mind at the last second and started a slow, circular trek around the table. Yeah, your partner told me all about it. I believe you were standing behind him at the time, but I wasn't sure if it was you or one of the neighborhood kids. He's a big guy. Miles ignored this jab and continued. You uh, haven't answered my question. How well did you know him? I shrugged. I've seen him around. I know him by reputation more than I know the man himself. And uh, what was his reputation? Depends who you ask. I'm asking you. I leaned back in my chair, glanced over at Homicide Detective Fred Hutton, who was staring at me with an intensity that made me think he looked more confused than focused. He was a fake psychic, a fraud, and not a nice guy. He made a lot of money being that way. I didn't know him well, but if I had, I'm sure I would have thought even less of him. You have any reason to kill him? I shook my head. Actually, it's just the other way around. After what I did to him last night, he had plenty of reason to want to kill me. Why is that? Because I did a fairly good job of taking his act apart piece by piece and exposing him for the fraud that he is. Miles didn't reply. He sat down and took a large, official-looking envelope out of the file folder he'd brought in with him. From that envelope he took a small, sealed, clear plastic evidence bag. The label on the front of the bag, which was filled in with an illegible scrawl, blocked the contents of the carrier from view. Generating as much drama as he could muster, he slowly swung the bag around, revealing the contents. Can you identify this? Once the bag had made its 180-degree orbit, I could finally see inside. It was a playing card, the King of Diamonds, by the looks of it, but two things made it initially tough to identify. The first was that the face on the card had a large gash cut through it, but that wasn't the biggest problem. The real impediment was that the face of the card was smeared with what looked to be blood, so much blood that what had once been a stiff playing card was now nearly a mushy mash of pulp. It appears to be a playing card, the King of Diamonds. Miles let the plastic bag continue to twirl as he held it up. This card was found on the victim's body. To be more specific, when he was stabbed through the eyes, this card was over one of those eyes. The right eye. He set the clear plastic bag on the table, and the card appeared to ooze a bit as it settled on the flat surface. What's interesting, he said, is that the deck of cards you left outside at the property desk matches this design, and it's missing a king of diamonds. I thought this over before speaking. I'll ignore for the moment that you've gone through my personal effects, sort of nullifying the concept of personal, I said, looking from Miles to Homicide Detective Fred Hutton and back to Miles again. I gave Gray that card at the end of my act last night. I put it in his breast pocket. Everybody saw me do it. Miles was about to respond to that when the door to the room opened and the same young uniformed cop from earlier entered. He made a point of not looking at me. Instead, he handed a couple of sheets of paper to Miles, turned on his heels, and walked out. He looked like a man who was delivering bad news and didn't want to stick around to see it presented. Miles paged thoughtfully through the report, taking his time. When he was done, he handed the papers over to Homicide Detective Fred Hutton and turned his attention back to me. "'Fingerprint report,' he said, leaning back in his chair. "'Seems your fingerprints are on the murder weapon. A letter opener of some kind.' "'I remember it,' I said, not liking this turn of events, but doing my best not to let that show.' I used it at the program last night. Two hundred people in the audience saw me handle it. Don't forget it was on television as well, Miles added, the local PBS station. Well then, that's at least another hundred witnesses. And then someone used it to kill Mr. Gray. He looked at me for what felt like a long time, and I did my best to hold his gaze. This stare-down was interrupted when the door to the room opened again but this time no one came in from my position I couldn't see who had opened it homicide detective Fred Hutton looked up instantly jumped to his feet and walked out of the room I heard some feverish whispering outside the door and a moment later homicide detective Fred Hutton returned he moved to miles side and bent down to whisper in the small man's ear miles nodded and followed him out of the room returning a second later to shut the door. The room was quiet, and I couldn't hear any sounds from outside. Perhaps it was soundproofed. I tapped my fingers on the table for a few seconds, enjoying the room's natural reverberation, and then noticed that the digital audio recorder was still in record mode, with its LCD time counter rolling forward. I glanced at the door, and then started to hum a persistent song that had come into my head about an hour before. After a few seconds, I switched from humming to singing, softly, and by the time I finished the second verse and was moving through the third, I was almost a full voice. I drove full-voiced into the fourth and final verse and then listened to the reverb die down after I had finished singing. My timing was perfect, for at that moment the door swung open and Miles came back into the room. Uh, That's all we'll need from you today, Mr. Marks. He said in a practiced tone. Thanks for coming down. Ten minutes later, I was walking down the steps into the echoing north rotunda of City Hall toward the large and impressive Father of Waters statue, a marble monstrosity that completely overwhelms the lobby and makes you feel that you've just stepped into a Jason and the Argonauts movie. On any other day, that might have been an appealing prospect, but at the moment, I wasn't in the mood. All of my personal effects were safely back in my pockets, with the exception of the deck of cards. Apparently, the police wanted to hang on to it, perhaps for a card game later in the day, which was fine with me. Like any working magician, I have a case of cards in the basement and wouldn't miss that particular deck. I was heading toward the glass revolving doors when I heard the distinctive sharp tip-tap of high heels approaching from behind. I got a whiff of the familiar perfume a nanosecond before she breezed past me. A short blonde whirlwind in a tight blue skirt and matching blazer. Meet me over at the little wagon, she said in a practiced whisper. I'll be there in ten minutes. She made a sudden sharp right turn and headed down a corridor toward the east end of the building. I watched her go for a second and then pushed my way through the revolving door and out into the autumnal sunlight. She had certainly picked a convenient, if not particularly inconspicuous, destination. Just a block from City Hall, the Little Wagon is a downtown institution, perhaps not for its cuisine or atmosphere, but certainly for its longevity. It's gone through several owners in the past few years, but its location walking distance from the government center, City Hall, and the one remaining daily newspaper, makes it literally the hub of government and journalism in the city. Plus, they make a Reuben sandwich that's almost worth going to jail for. It was still a little early for the lunch crowd, but the place was not completely unpopulated. There were some well-worn regulars in the back corner. As far as I could tell, They were sitting exactly where they had been the last time I'd been here. That was probably two years ago. At the bar, three guys were vigorously arguing the same side of a political argument, and a David Allen Coe song played through the sound system. I took a table near the wall and spared the ancient waitress, Cora, the obligation of running through the specials, telling her I'd only need a cup of coffee, cream, no sugar. As promised... Deirdre entered ten minutes later, taking off her sunglasses the moment she walked in. She stood in the doorway for a few moments as her eyes adjusted to the perpetual dim light in the room. I gave an unnecessary wave as there were only five customers in the place, and she headed toward my table. While we were married, I had always referred to Deirdre as my beautiful wife. And I kept up the practice after the divorce, just altering it slightly to my beautiful ex-wife. She certainly was that, a standout blonde in a land of blondes. She had an icy coolness that can be both attractive and off-putting, often simultaneously. I'm sure when we were married, people wondered how a no-nonsense gal like Deirdre had ended up with an all-nonsense guy such as me. I've often pondered that myself. "'Sorry about that,' she said as she sat down, a little breathless. She waved to Cora and gestured to her empty coffee cup. Cora, looking up from her crossword puzzle, made a quick erasure on the newspaper, then headed toward the coffee urn. "'Sorry about what?' I asked. "'Fred sort of jumped the gun back there,' she said, pulling her hair back out of her eyes and depositing her sunglasses into her purse. "'I mean, bringing you in and all that.' Uh, Perhaps he was trying to avoid the appearance of favoritism, I suggested. How would it look if the assistant DA's ex-husband was given preferential treatment? I'm sure there was nothing personal in it, I added, without a trace of conviction in my voice. She looked up, concerned. You didn't call him that name, did you? she asked tentatively. No, I was able to restrain myself. Good. He hates that name, and using it isn't going to make things go any easier for you. Ah, yes. That name. Let me explain. Once Deirdre's tawdry and clandestine affair with homicide detective Fred Hutton had come to light, followed quickly by our divorce and her subsequent remarriage, where Deirdre Sutton took on the hysterical, at least to me, hyphenated name of Deirdre Sutton Hutton, I had begun the habit of referring to her new beau not simply as fred but instead as mediocre fred the fault is not entirely my own i blame my uncle harry and his love of comedy albums throughout his career harry had made a point of tracking down the record albums of those comedians he had had the pleasure of performing with from the well-known to the truly obscure Harry had worked many of the top nightclubs during the 60s, so as a result, he had a truly massive and impressive comedy album collection. Victor Borga, Shelley Berman, Woody Woodbury, Mort Saul, Henny Youngman, Rodney Dangerfield, even Bill Cosby and Bob Newhart were artists I listened to over and over again as a child. And of course, the Smothers Brothers. One of their songs in particular was a personal favorite of mine a charming ditty entitled Mediocre Fred. Given the emotionally painful conditions under which I first met Homicide Detective Fred Hutton, there are a plethora of other names I could have assigned to him. Under the circumstances, he could have done a lot worse than Mediocre Fred. Apparently, though, he disagrees, and it's been the primary sore spot among many sore spots between us. So... Am I an actual suspect in Gray's murder? I asked, changing the subject and cutting to the chase. Deirdre saw that Cora was approaching, so she held off speaking until after the unsmiling waitress had filled her empty coffee cup, topped off mine, and then returned to her crossword puzzle across the room. Deirdre spoke in a quiet voice, one I hadn't heard in a good long time, as many of the final conversations of our marriage had been pitched at a considerably higher decibel level. They don't have enough evidence to charge you, at least not yet, she said. There's no clear motive, and this particular victim was not particularly well-liked in either the real estate world or the psychic world. So holding you now could potentially hurt the case, particularly when you consider the personal connection between you and the arresting officer. And the assistant district attorney, I said, completing the triangle. Yes, she said, there is that. So who else do they suspect? Well, now that I've taken you off the short list, at least for the time being, they're beginning to widen the net. We've watched the tape of last night's performance for Leeds, and they've already talked to Grace's assistant from the show. Apparently, several witnesses saw them having quite the screaming argument in the parking lot around 11. Which one? I asked. Which parking lot? Which assistant? Once it registered, the question nearly made Deirdre do a spit-take with her coffee, which, admittedly, would have been a great sight gag. But since I was sitting directly across from her, I'm glad she was able to control the spew. What do you mean, which assistant? She said, coughing a bit and wiping her mouth with her napkin. I watched the tape. There's just the one. The scary dark-haired chick. Nova, I added. Yes, she was on stage with him, but he clearly had another assistant working backstage. Gray was wearing some sort of hidden earpiece and receiving information during the show. How do you think he did the magazine and book bit? Second sight? I don't know, Deirdre shrugged. Mirrors? I said, wagging a finger at her. And you, the ex-wife of a magician, falling for an old routine like that. Deirdre rolled her eyes as she grabbed her purse. She hurriedly burrowed through it and pulled out her cell phone, hitting the speed dial. It's me, she said to whoever answered, although I have a pretty good idea who it was. Gray had two assistants, not just the one. Yes, someone backstage. She glanced over at me, then turned her attention back to the phone. I just know, that's all. There's another assistant. She ended the conversation by closing the cell phone, although I think I detected a small voice still coming out of the phone as it was snapped shut. I think you cut him off, I said, holding back a smile. Yeah, probably she said as she tossed the phone back into her purse. We were both silent for a moment, just looking at each other. I can't say for sure what she was thinking, but I couldn't help wondering what it was that had gotten us to this point and what I could have done earlier that would have changed the outcome. So they stabbed him in the eyes, she said, breaking my train of thought. That's a little weird, don't you think? Perhaps they're making a point, I suggested. Something about his second sight. Perhaps, she said, taking another sip of her coffee. Or perhaps the killer was referencing the card trick you did with the knife through the King of Diamonds' eyes. Perhaps, I cautiously agreed. She set the cup down and gave me a hard look. I'm not kidding around here, Eli, she said firmly, and neither is homicide. You're a legitimate suspect in this case, until her voice trailed off. Until I'm not, I said. That's right, she said. Until you're not. She finished her coffee in one gulp and then set the cup back in its saucer and pushed it away. She stood up to leave. One last question, I said. The audio recording of the interrogation I just went through. What happens to that? She grabbed her purse off the corner of the chair and began to dig through it. They burn it to a disc and then have it transcribed, she said. And then? Then the interrogating officers sign off on it, and it goes into the file. If it's needed in court, they'll pull it out and send it over. So, the interrogating officers read everything that was on the recording? She had found her sunglasses. They're supposed to, she said. Why do you want to know? No particular reason, I said casually. She gave me a puzzled look and then turned and headed toward the door, disappearing out of the dim room into the bright sunshine on the street outside. I sat back and sipped my coffee, smiling with the understanding that at some point in the near future, homicide detective Fred Hutton was going to read a transcript of me singing all four verses of the Smothers Brothers song, Mediocre Fred. You can't buy satisfaction like that. And that's chapter six. Thank you, Jim. Nice reading. Thank you very much. You know what? Uh, yeah, having been reading these books now for low these many years, I still have never heard the song Mediocre Fred. That is a tragedy. Don't you think, it would Just let's just do this, because it would be so cool to talk with Tommy Smothers on this yes. podcast about that song, given the fact that it was so much a part of Uh, your conception of a homicide detective, Fred Hutton. Uh, So folks, if you're listening to the show and you know Tommy Smothers, could you get in touch with him and get him to get in touch with us? Because it'd be great to chat with him. That would
1: be fantastic.
0: It's a a podcast, folks, podcast land, do your magic.
1: Yes, six degrees of mediocre Fred. So before we wrap up the show, I want to thank Sandy Marshall for talking to me about his dad, Jay Marshall.
0: Yes, indeed. And uh, the, I think in the show notes, you're going to find uh, all kinds of great links to Jay Marshall performing, folks. And you ought to watch it because it's great.
1: He's fantastic. And speaking of fantastic, in our next episode, uh, we'll be chatting with the truly great and funny and wonderful David Regal uh, about his experiences in creating and selling magic.
0: Yeah, that was a fun interview. And in the episode after David Regal, we're going to start our two-part interview with none other than Dick Cavett. Down the line from that, we're going to talk to Julie Eng, uh, Steve Spill, terrific magician, Derek Hughes, Nick DeFat, both very funny guys with Minnesota connections for us, and the incredible John Carney. It's quite a lineup.
1: Yes, and more to come after that that we'll be announcing in future episodes. Uh, So anyway, we'll see you next time for Chapter 7 of the Ambitious Card. Please give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Uh, They tell me that's very important because somehow it tells the algorithms that people are listening and they promote them more. And uh, if you have a chance, will leave a review.
0: Absolutely. O- only if it's going to be a good review though. I don't hear any crap, no knucklehead comments. I'm, I won't stand for it. I won't tolerate rude behavior in a man. Uh, and you know what else you ought to sign up, uh, click the button, the subscribe button so that you always get a chance to hear these things. Yeah. So before we go, we're going to see you out
1: with Jay Marshall and Lefty singing a bit of If I Had My Way from the Ed Sullivan Show. So enjoy this and thanks everybody.
0: We'll see you soon.
3: If yes, I have my way, dear. Go ahead, don't rush. For their feet they're watching your lips, never mind <laughs> Your lips are moving Sing the song Your garden of roses Catch that? I caught that I rolled the R I know you did Uh... Now please...
0: <laughs>
3: I'm glad you brought that up Sing the song <laughs> For you You're off key A thousand and one things Dear, I would do Just for you Just for you Once more Once more Just for you Just for you Second part If I had my way, dear Kiss me Sing a <laughs> song And sunshine I'd bring Every day You would rain Give me the voice I started with All alone Like a queen on a throat uh, Would you clear your throat? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you if I have...
0: This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albertsbridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Thanks for listening.